may be seated. And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Children, that's the last book of the Bible, so um, you can just open your Bible and turn backwards a few pages. Revelation chapter 1, if you are um, visiting with us and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 8. We want this to be in front of you. We believe it is God's Word. It is why we study it. Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1 and then reading all the way through verse 8. This is God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is... And who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Would you join with me as we ask his blessing on his words preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, this is our ask. Would you stand in our midst and preach to us as our prophet? And would you do so with the power of the King of kings and Lord of lords, so that we would leave here transformed. But above all, this is what we want to see. We want to see the cross. We want to see you as the Lamb slain for our sins. And we want to see you as ruling forever and ever. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. I was just caught by these words as we were singing it. Let us sing through fierce temptations, threaten hard to bear us down. Right? That would be, in and of itself, that would sort of be an empty exhortation. I mean, it would be great, let's sing in the midst of trials, but that sort of is the heart of the Christian life, right? To sing 
through trials, but it is, uh, it is an instruction and exhortation that's grounded in this. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds in view the conqueror's crown. He who washed us with his blood will soon bring us home to God. That's why we can sing in the midst of fierce temptations that bear us down, that threaten hard to bear stone. Martin Luther had a litmus test for a pastor. And it was this, does he know death and the devil or just sweetness and light? But I think that's sort of be the litmus test for the true follower of Jesus, right? It's, ca- it's fun to get caught up in the latest social trend or movement or theory or idea that's passing through. It gives us a bit of a rush, a taste of belonging to something bigger and being more important than we actually are. But I am convinced that the average person is just like me. And probably like you in the moments when you're most willing to admit it, we are just trying to get through the day. Days that are not always filled up with sweetness and light, only to find that after we've gotten through that day with fierce temptations that bear us down, that we have to get up the next day and do it all over again. And Revelation was written for us to spark our imagination, to see the world from another vantage point to drop us again into God's story of the world. So what we're going to do today, I said last week, that was week one of an introduction to this book that for most of us is probably the most confusing book of the Bible, second only to Ezekiel, which we're also reading through um, at this time, and Zechariah, which we preached through um, in the spring and summer. Um, And so our goal is not to greatly confuse you um, by ending up here, but to open up for us what God is doing in the world. That's what these books serve to do. They should not be greatly confusing because And most of the time we are greatly confusing because we just don't know how to approach them. They're a type of literature that we don't often see and hear. Apocalyptic literature was very common at the time that John is writing. And I had said last week that in our common language, apocalypse usually means the end of time, a great event at the end of time, but that's not really how the Bible uses that word. Apocalypse means unveiling, right? Sometimes it's used for taking the cover off of something that was hidden. God is just pulling back the curtain and saying, I know you're getting confused by everything that's right in front of you, so just back up a little bit and and let me show you who I am and what what I'm doing in the world. And the way he does this is by engaging our imagination. But because of that, let me just say this, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, you're going to hear me at times say, I'm just not sure what to do with this. And that's okay. We don't have to have everything figured out, nor do we have to have all of our opinions nailed down in stone. This is the role of the Bible. This is God's word, and he is the only authority in it. At times, it's okay for us to say, I'm just not sure. I'm not quite sure yet in my life what to do. I've said last week that I had promised myself I would not preach through the book of Revelation until I was 20 years into ministry. I'm 
past that and then even waited because there are times when I'm not quite sure to do what to do with God's word. And I think there's this pressure on all of us that we feel that we're supposed to be experts on everything and commentate on, in real time on amazingly complex issues and then have it all figured out. And then we jump into a zero-sum game where this is my opinion, I'm right, you're wrong, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose, and there should be this, I think, humble ability to hold things a little more loosely and so there will be times when you'll hear me say i'm really sure about this but i'm not quite really sure about what to do with this and that that's what you'll find i think i call this the epistemic paradox um, epistemic for the word for knowing epistemology is the study of how we know what we know when you get to someone who is an expert in their field and studied a great deal you will hear them say three words more often than someone who is not an expert. And it's these three words, I don't know. The closer someone gets to something, the more they realize, actually, the more they do know, the more they realize how little they know. And this is the way I think we should approach the Bible just in general. There are parts of the book of Revelation that are hard to figure out, and there are parts that are easier to figure out. Revelation is confusing at times, and here's why. Because it appeals to our imagination with vivid pictures and signs and symbols. That is by design. The design is not to be precise, but to bring clarity in another way by appealing to our imagination, by capturing our heart, by giving us a vision of Jesus. And so it can be confusing at times because of the tools that it uses to bring clarity. And I do think there are some things that we can clearly see in the book of Revelation. This, in fact, is what it is meant to do, to give God's people a greater confidence in the world because it is God's revelation. And when he reveals, he reveals in true and good and helpful ways. While it may not be equally clear, it is not ultimately unclear. And so last week I said that the first word of the book of this, the worst first word of the book of Revelation is the apocalypse because God is unveiling. And so I want to give us two points that I think will help bring clarity to our understanding of this book. One, first, it is an epistle. It's a letter written. And two, Revelation is the culmination of God's story written in the Bible. So there's two points. Don't get your hopes up. That doesn't mean it's going to be short. Just two points. I feel like I'm having to manage expectations a lot lately. So let me manage your expectations. First, it's an epistle. It's a letter. Right? And, and, and I think this kind of gives us an interpretive grid. Revelation follows a typical letter of the day. It starts with an introduction. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. It's written by someone to someone. 
And then it follows with a greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. And then it ends, the book ends with a benediction, which we're going to loop in from time to time. And if you turn to any one of the other letters in the New Testament, either written by Paul or the Apostle John or Peter, they all follow the same pattern. A greeting to a people and then a greeting from the Lord Jesus, grace and peace. And I think what this does is it helps us give us a better interpretive grip because whatever we think is going on in the book of Revelation, whatever we think that John is revealing, it is meant to speak into the world of the original recipients. And this helps ground our interpretation. But it also helps remind us that God is active in the world and is the Lord of history. Thus, he works and he reveals himself in historical events to his people. God is open about his agenda and plans. There's no hidden knowledge to the way of the Lord Jesus. He has publicly declared what he is up to. And because of that, the gospel is a grounded hope in God's work in this world, particularly his acts of redemption. Because what God is doing when he speaks is he's speaking into the circumstances of his people. That was true when John wrote the book of Revelation, and it is true today. And when God speaks to people in a historical circumstance, it is to give us a grid to strengthen us for the trials that we are facing. It's not given to an ethereal people, some mysterious people out there. And this is why John calls his letter a prophecy in verse 3. Blessed who reads aloud, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who bear it and keep what is written, for the time is near. Now, prophecy, and, and what John is doing is he's placing his letter in a long history of what God does when he reveals his word. Because prophecy in the Bible is not so much God speaking about the future, but God speaking into the lives of his people. It's not so much him speaking forward as he is speaking forth. Sometimes that includes him speaking forward, but all the time it is God speaking into the world. And John's putting himself, this letter, squarely in this. He is speaking by God's voice into the lives of his people and unveiling God's purposes. And it's written, we've hinted at this along, it's written by someone to someone. It's written by the Apostle John. Most scholars agree on this. We have tremendous testimony from the second century AD, just if our assumption is that John wrote this around 95 AD within a generation, we have early church fathers saying, John, the apostle, wrote this. And he says, if you've got your Bibles in verse 9, we've not printed this text for you, but in verse 9, he says this, 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. And here's what's going on. John had set up his home base in the city of Ephesus late in his ministry. And because of the persecution of the emperor Domitian, John was sent to a prison colony on an island off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. John's the last apostle alive at this point. Every other apostle had been killed by the Jews or the Romans for following Jesus. John alone is left because it was costly to speak forth God's word in that world because there are always pressures to conform to the world, to make subtle compromises, to give just a little ground. And because of that, every single apostle had been killed. And now John was sent to a prison colony. And thus, John identifies with his audience. I know what it's like to feel the subtle pressures of the world around you, to conform. And so let me tell you why I'm writing to you. I'm writing so that you and I can have patient endurance because we are in the midst of tribulation. But in the hands of God, This is the normal experience throughout the history of the church. But in the hands of God, the church faces this with great redemption. This is for God's people, not just a word to interpret, but a word to strengthen. And a word to strengthen as the circumstances around us are acts of redemption. Listen to what one author says. The church needs these trials, not just speaking here of John, but all the trials the church faces. The church needs these trials in order that it may be cleaned and purified, in order that true believers may be brought closer to God. By means of affliction and cross-bearing, God's children make progress in sanctification. Why? Because the Christ on the throne overrules evil for God. I, John, write to you the seven churches who are facing the same kind of pressure so that what is revealed in this book might strengthen you in the midst of tribulation for a patient endurance. We were just talking earlier up here. I just so appreciate that language of patient endurance. It is going to be the theme of the book of Revelation. Hold on, just hold on to Jesus. Maybe that's the best you can do today, is patiently endure. Not victory, Not triumph, maybe the best that you can do is hold on to the one who sits on his throne triumphantly, knowing that he holds in view the conqueror's crown. And this is why. Because Jesus is putting the world right again. 
That's why Jesus is the great hope in a world that is really, really messed up. And that's just not out there. My friends, that's in here. It's not just the world that's messed up. My own heart is messed up. And I think you are with me in that. And here's our second point. Revelation is the culmination of God's story. Because the Bible is one long story. This is one of our core commitments as a church. One of the things that we want to install in your hearts that the Bible is one story. It's one story that has one long plot line and it follows this basic sketch. God created the world good. He put humanity in his presence where they were flourishing. God was there and we were with him. But Adam rebelled against God. And all of the people that were in Adam were put under the curse of sin. And that curse has affected God's good creation too. But God, that would, not, that would be a terrible end to a story. That's just the first three chapters. The whole rest of the story is this theme. But God would not leave it that way. He would not leave his people under the curse of sin. Instead, he would send another man to undo what the first man had done. That's the grand narrative of the Bible. And one of the things it tells us is that the story in this world is linear. It's going somewhere. It's not cyclical. It has an end. And that end is the culmination of God's work of redemption that will end in salvation through judgment. Verse 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is going to win. That's why God can say, I am, verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, children, and Omega is the last letter. You see what God's saying? I started this story I'm going to finish this story. It's going somewhere. And as a result, as the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation is the culmination of God's story. And as such, it's not the culmination of man's story. Utopia can't be produced by human efforts. In fact, what man often builds, and we'll see this through the book of Revelation, what man often builds is starkly against God and his kingdom. And at best, what man often builds is full of mess and error. And the last book of the Bible, then, Revelation, is the culmination of the true story of the world. See, themes that began, let me illustrate this for a second, because I think this helps us with another interpretive grid. Things that began in the book of Genesis are unfolded in the unfolding drama of, of the Bible, culminate or end in the book of Revelation. For instance, scholars estimate that out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them contain references to the Old Testament. 
In other words, if you haven't read the rest of your Bible, you're not going to be able to make much sense out of the book of Revelation because what John is doing is he's grabbing all of these themes and ideas. Do you see what God was doing? Do you see what God is doing? Let me tie all of these strands together in one knot that is about Jesus, the lamb slain for sins and coming again. For instance, the serpent that was introduced as the evil one in Genesis 3, he was the one who tempted Eve. He co-opted God's flourishing people into his plan to overthrow God's rule and take his place on his throne. That was his intention. But God curses Satan. He brings him under his judgment. And God said, look, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be two conflicts that play out in this world between two kingdoms, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is Genesis 3.15. It's the first time the gospel shows up. And God says to the serpent, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to win some battles. I'm going to win the war. And that's the first promise. Well, this story develops throughout the Bible. It actually begins almost immediately developing. The first siblings kill each other. And in Revelation 12, though, as that story develops, the serpent from Genesis 3, has grown into a dragon. And when the woman gives birth to her seed, just as had been promised in Genesis 3.15, the dragon attempts to devour him. But the dragon is conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, the tree of life in Genesis 3, which had been guarded after the fall by the cherubim with flaming swords, all of a sudden shows back up. The end of the book, Revelation 22. Now the nations of the world are eating at the tree of life where God is once again in their presence again. I could do this all day and we will do this throughout the book. Genesis 49, God promises that Judah is going to sit on his throne, but he calls her a lion, calls Judah a lion cub. That little lion cub, that little, that little pet animal that has no ferocity to it, it's going to grow up, it's going to rule the nations. And so what happens in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, you see the lion of the tribe of Judah seated on his throne. It started just small, it's grown all the way. God has taken his time but when he takes his time does not mean that he won't fulfill all of his promises and all of his promises and all of his plans are ultimately and only fulfilled in Jesus Christ it's not on our backs you see most of the time our problem is not that we abandon the story of Jesus most of the time, it's not just we're going to leave that behind. Most of the time we think that's good, but I need other stories to go with it. And so we add to it. Our temptation is to acknowledge the importance of what God is doing in the world, but then to practically deny its sufficiency. This is the greatest story ever told. Because it's the story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. We might say, many have said to me and others, you've heard it, we need more practical advice from the Bible. And where the Bible has practical advice to give, it gives it. But the best gift that the Bible can give us is to tell you the story that is not about 
you. For we don't have what it takes to be the author and hero of our story. When, listen, when I fall back into that, I've got to author my story, I've got to win my own wars. This is when anxiety just skyrockets in my heart. In fact, when we write our own story, the script turns out worse than Wonder Woman 1984. It's just a jumbled mess with a bad plot line. You see, what we need to do is we need to attach our story to the story of God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. It's not that we need Jesus to come into our story, make it a little bit better. We need our story to come into the story of Jesus. In the end of verse 6, Revelation is not primarily then about future events, but it is a letter from the one who rules all events. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And because it is from Jesus to bring us into his story, it is the book of Revelation and the story of Jesus because it's the culmination of the story of Jesus. It is his story and his story is always cruciform. That's just technical language for it looks like the cross. It has the shape of the cross and it centers on the cross. And the cross of Jesus takes center stage throughout the Bible and especially throughout the book of Revelation. And that has to be an interpretive guide for us because John is not highlighting the events of the world. He is highlighting Jesus and him crucified. Back to verse 5. He does this from the very beginning. John, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's not language of he just was raised from the dead. Because there have been a lot of people in the Bible who got raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus did a few of those himself. He's not the first one to be raised from the dead. When he says firstborn from the dead, he means the firstborn who was raised from the dead after bearing the curse of God for the sin. He's the firstborn to enter into the new creation and is seated on the throne, centers on the cross from the very beginning. And as a result, second part of verse 5 this is from the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Why? Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the great achievement of Jesus. It is his humble death bearing our sins that make him the center of all stories. And Jesus and him crucified is the center of God's story than it is to meet our greatest needs. Whatever we think that we need in this world, this is the one thing that God says you need the most. You need to know that your sins are dealt with. You need to know that you've moved out of my wrath and judgment into this status. I love you. I've washed you with my blood. I've freed you from your sins. I've made you a kingdom and priest to God. You can approach me with boldness and confidence. You don't have to go through anybody else. You don't need to add to this. You are priest. And to 
Him be glory forever and ever. He's coming back to get us. Now, let me take us to one other place. If you've got your Bibles, you can look closely here. Chapters 4 and 5, we'll circle back around to this in a few weeks. It'll probably be a couple months, actually, before we get to chapter 4. John sees a vision in chapter 4. A door opens, and he gets to see inside the current activity of heaven. He sees God the Father seated on his throne, the cherubim all around him. And he, it is an awe-inducing, fearful experience. Flashes of lightning, clashes of thunder. God in all his royal and fearful glory. Right? It's a, he's not a God who can be managed. God, God can be approached casually, but one who has people and angels bowing before him. And then John sees an angel on his throne at the beginning of chapter, sees an angel, sorry, at the beginning of chapter 5, and the angel's going, who can bring this story to a close? Who's got the right to bring this story to a close? In the midst of the chaos and the disruption of the world, who can end this story? And then the angel, and John weeps. He's like, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's the most important question that can be asked right now. And he weeps. I don't know. And then the angel takes John's attention and he shows him Jesus. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so he can bring this story to a close. But do you know what John sees? He doesn't see a vision of a great king who has power and authority to bring God's judgment and to do away with sin once and for all. Though that's true, this is what he sees. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then he hears the voice of myriads and myriads of creatures and people and angels with a loud voice belting out, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and death and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The thing that makes Jesus qualified to reign forever and ever is that he was slain for our sins. And there are three truths that I want you to attach to this. Because the shape of the kingdom is always cruciform. Because the king is cruciform in shape. By the way, the lamb is the vision that will carry us all the way through from 4 all the way to chapter 20. It's the primary vision of Jesus. Slain for our sins. Cross-shaped. The cross is at the center. So as a result, this is one of me, one of John's themes. You don't get to the victory that Jesus brings unless you go through the suffering. That's the tension of the now and now yet. Paul says it in, in Romans 8, I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. This is one of the reasons we've gone to the book of Revelation because I think we need that vision right now to carry us through whatever is going on. And that should frame our experience in this world. I'm afraid that so much of our fear over politics and sickness and job loss and parenting and bills piling up and exhaustion, it's an attempt to avoid sorrow, suffering, and pain in this world. But one of the things the book of Revelation is going to say, that's the normal life for the Christian. 
because you're attached to the story of Jesus as well as as well as being pressured to abandon the gospel as the central story of your lives. This is why he refers to Jesus as the witness. That, wit- that word witness is the word that we get martyr from. The one who witnesses to what God is doing in the world and therefore is pressured by the world to abandon. Jesus says, John says, from the beginning, guess what? Jesus is the exemplary martyr. He did that. Now look what God has done. He's exalted him, given him every name that is above names, the name that no one can take away. He's been given glory and honor. And if you follow his story, if you come into his story, he's going to take you there too. This world is broken by sin and under the curse of God, and whatever relief we get from that curse is a gift of God's grace and is temporary until the great day when God undoes it in Christ. Second truth that we need to attach to this, our sufferings are never meritorious. You don't suffer to get God's pleasure. If you are in Christ, he has freed you from, the, from your sins. You are beloved by the Father, verse 5. You don't have to suffer, suffer to make God happy. He's happy with you because you're in his story. And then third, this is all going somewhere in Jesus. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That's my great hope. That's our great hope. If you're in Christ, God's going to, he's written this story so that it's climaxed in the death of his son. The one who sits on the throne has been given all power and authority because he went through suffering to glory And because he has shed his blood for you, you've come into his story, and so let's just patiently endure. Every problem aren't ours to fix. Rather, the God who has been faithful thus far will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. So that this is the theme of the story. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and who is to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need you every hour, every moment. We need you to speak, and we need you to give us hearts to receive. We need you to strengthen us and give us a vision that's greater than the circumstances of our lives. And we need you to take these ordinary elements as we come to your table and make the cross central and sufficient. And may we interpret all of our experience in what you have done in Jesus Christ. For our hearts are wandering Bring us back again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.